Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. I am Claudia Wessling, Head of Publications at Merix. Uh, thanks for joining me today for another Merix podcast. This is Merix Experts, the podcast on current events in China. And today I am joined by Chloe Froissart, who is an associate professor in Chinese studies at Ren2 University in France, and also a researcher at the French Center for Research on Contemporary China in Hong Kong. Chloe Froissart is specialized in the study of citizenship issues, participatory practices, and civil society in China. And in her more than 15 years of professional experience in and with China, she has worked, amongst others, as an advisor to the UNESCO and several non-governmental and governmental organizations, as well as multinational corporations. Chloe's special focus lies on labor and environmental politics. And today we want to talk about labor movements, the role of trade unions, or the one trade union there is in China. Um, Chloe, you have been researching the situation of workers in China for a very long time. What exactly is the situation in a socialist country like China where I would think that trade unions are, I mean, theoretically not necessary at all, right? Because the Communist Party represents all the workers already. This is, of course, a big contradiction as China has become now a fully capitalist country and Chinese trade unions have been built up during the Maoist area uh, with principal tenet was that actually uh, workers were the owner of the enterprises and that actually employers and employees shared the same corporatist interests. So trade union were supposed to be a bridge between the party and the people, including employers and employees whose interests were not conceived as being divergence. So this, of course, has changed with the introduction of market economy and of course, now the two-party interests are completely divergent. So this is one of the main reasons why strikes and protests have increased dramatically over the years. And um, how does the All-China Federation of Trade Unions cope with this changed situation where contradictions between workers and employers all of a sudden have emerged with the coming in of market economy elements? Actually, the mounting protests and strikes have put pressure on Chinese trade union to reform. And the turning point has been the big wave of strikes in 2010, where workers demanded important wage increase and also to, what they said, to rebuild the trade union, which means that they want a trade union that better represents them and that they could elect. Since then, actually, the SAFTU, the All China Federation of Trade Union, tried to introduce some forms of authoritarian collective bargaining so that trade unions could better represent the interests of workers without changing their belonging to the state apparatus. So, of course, um, trade unions are not fully trade unions since that we understand them, which means that they do not fully represent workers. Instead, they play a role of mediators between employers and employees. Still, they manage to better represent the interests of workers and help them get a bigger share of the enterprise benefit that they would otherwise gain. The difference with our collective bargaining is that our 
collective bargaining system is based on the recognition of the right to strike, which is not the case in China. Because they have to represent the interest of employers, employees, the party and the entire nation. This is this is like uh, the ideological tenet of any um, trade union, so-called communist country. Apart from the trade unions, there's other organizations which try to support workers nowadays in China, the so-called uh, labor NGOs. You have published quite extensively on these organizations and you also did field work looking into what these organizations do for workers, how they proceed, how they work, how they try to support them. Could you tell me a little bit about your field work and about the role of these labor NGOs? These labor NGOs, they used to play a very, very important role from the end of the 90s, beginning of 2000 until recently, where there has been like a big, big crackdown, important crackdown in the uh, December 2015. And after that, things were not the same, of course. The NGOs have been doing most work on so-called right defense NGOs. So they help workers to defend their rights. And you have like different periods that could be distinguished with different strategies. The NGOs that are more like closer to workers and really helping them to gain bargaining power and autonomy are located in Guangdong province. And over the years, they changed their strategies. First, they really try to help workers better know the law and um, try to help them uh, lodge complaints with the administrative bodies and also with the courts. But over the years, they just realized that actually the cost, both in time and money, of going through these institutional channels of conflict resolution was actually too high. So they decided actually to help workers to organize themselves um, and be able to promote social dialogue and discuss directly with employers. And that's how actually they try to promote what we call true collective bargaining means autonomous collective bargaining. Actually, when you had a conflict in a, in a factory or an enterprise, like lots of, I mean, usually uh, workers would come and find these NGOs that are not allowed. And then um, these NGOs will help workers to select their demand prioritize their demand and um, help them to, to elect representative, train representatives to negotiate with the employers and help workers to, to learn some strategies on how to bargain with the employers. And did that work at the time? I mean, did people join collectively? Did they join hands to fight for their interests? Because I read many accounts and uh, news articles on cases where uh, the leaders of a protest were paid a higher salary and then they left the collective and uh, You're went right. back to their work. Uh, did that, I mean, do you know cases at the time where it really ended up in a collective effort to fight for one's rights uh, together? Yes, of course. I mean, the whole challenge for trade, for, for, for uh, NGOs is to maintain the unity and solidarity among workers because the whole strategy of the employers and sometimes trade unions supporting employers and local, uh, local authorities is to divide and rule. And, um, so exploit conflict of interest among workers. So basically, um, 
yes, the whole challenge for uh, NGOs is to maintain this unity. And some of conflict were actually solved through the solidarity of workers that were able to negotiate like better working conditions or higher salaries or just the implementation of their legal rights. Actually, this is one of the reasons why all these NGOs were suppressed in December 2015. So one might say that the uh, labor NGOs were a bit too successful for the Chinese exactly. government to accept. What, what, what did the government do? Just, it was like a coordinated crackdown when like, you have many activists um, that were arrested and five of them actually were in prison and had to do like television, um, public confession on television and had to get through smear campaigns and all this. Um, of course, when they went out from prison, these activists were not able to, to set up their organization again. And... It has become so difficult to set up an organization and sustain an organization in the long term that actually um, like individual activists are trying to act and work uh, through social media or to informal network. I mean, and um, not relying so much on an organization. Uh, the problem is actually that I've just heard like recently on January 20th, um, five of individual activists have been arrested. So labor activists have been arrested. And this is really worrying because no formal charge has been held on them. And this is like, like a sign that repression is getting harder and harder at the at the moment in China. I would like to get back to the uh, NGO law briefly, uh, the law on regulating non-governmental organizations from abroad and from China. To what extent has that suffocated the, the, the activities of uh, labor NGOs? Because many of them, if I'm correctly informed, depend on money from abroad. Are those money flows now dead? How? What did this law do and this whole authoritarian turn the Communist Party took on the workers? Yes, you're right. Of course, the idea of this low foreign NGO law was to cut relations between um, foreign NGOs and foreign uh, foundation with domestic NGOs, especially try to dry up the funding sources. So this, uh, this law actually contributed to during the plurality of uh, civil society in China and tried to circumscribe um, what kind of uh, organization could survive in Chinese context. And of course, the plurality of funding is is key to the development of independent civil society. Um, but I would say that actually the Chinese civil society has changed a lot, but it's still not completely typhoon and there is kind of plurality that is still remaining at the moment. Of course, the NGOs that are right defense oriented or advocacy oriented have been strictly constrained. This is Merrick's Experts.
You're listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast on current affairs in China. I'm Claudia Wessling, and today I'm joined by Chloé Froissart from Rentou University in France. Professor Froissart is an expert for China civil society issues and labor movements in particular. Um, Chloé, I would like to talk about the JASIC case that happened a couple of months ago. For the background, a group of workers at this technology company in Shenzhen protested against inhumane conditions, unfair dismissal and harassment. And there was a crackdown with over 60 workers and supporters detained. Now this movement got support from Marxist students um, coming from Beijing, if I'm correctly informed. Um, how do you assess this event? Actually, like... Most of the strikes and protests, workers' protests at the moment, uh, workers were just asking for higher wages and um, and uh, trying to get paid, their salary paid and the social benefit paid. And we're also like, uh, not happy with the management, like flexible hours and whatever. These are like common demands. The big difference now is that workers are not only aware of their legal rights, they also propose solutions to get like their rights guaranteeing the long term. And they are fully aware that if trade union do not represent them, then they won't get like the law won't be um implemented and their rights won't be guaranteed. So they are asking for true trade union, they're asking for election trade union elections. So they are fully aware that the solution is political, right? So actually, they follow the trade union law that said that if, let's say, 25 workers sign a petition uh, for um, having like a trade union in the factory, um, they can go and find a higher level trade union, which is the district trade union, and ask the, its help in uh, building a trade union in the factory. And that that's what actually workers did. And the district union at first supported the workers, according to the law, but eventually um, they came to support employers that tried to manipulate as usual. So, of course, workers were not happy with this outcome. At the same time, you have, like, um, since the beginning of the 2000s, a new, a new left movement among academia, both in Hong Kong and China, and a lot of sociology professor that encourage their students, especially their masters, PhD students, to get hired as workers in factories or as trainees, like uh, in with trade unions. And this how they encourage the students to, at the same time, observe and experience workers' working conditions. So you have like a new generation of um, young researchers that are formed in new ethnographical uh, methods and really shared the condition of workers. But what is interesting right now is um, these students and academics really are not fooled by the double discourse of the Communist Party anymore, which pretends to uh to be a marxist party and build up like a socialist country and whatever and see how workers are exploited you know in a, what is now a truly capitalist economy so they are not fooled by uh what that will have called like the state lie anymore and they pretend to represent a true marxism 
Do you think that's a development that should uh, worry the Chinese government? Do you think this can grow in scale? The, these uh, leftist movement. Of course, the, the I mean, the Communist it? Party knows that this is. I mean, is very worried about this kind of movement, and more than fifty people have been arrested. I mean, the the the, the crackdown is breathtaking, and it shows in itself that the the party is very very worried. Simple reason is that the Communist Party is coming from you know the same alliance between workers mm -hmm. and young intellectuals so to know that this kind of alliance is the worst that they could see but at the same time you know um they won't let this uh, movement develop too much the party's repression capacity is now so big that it's hard to see that any kind of movement could develop to the point of threatening Xi Jinping's power also i should say that this uh marxist student and and academics movement is not supported by everybody. I mean, all the critics of Xi Jinping in Chinese society, because many of them just pointing that the students are naive and they don't know what, what happened under the Maoist regime and all the excesses of this kind of totalitarian regime. How do you see the situation in the civil society as a whole? I, I would gather that in a in the situation China is in right now with more market economy elements, a lot of competition going on, there is still room for dissent But still, the party is trying to control it very hard. By I mean, everybody knows the talk about the social credit system. How do these societal negotiations work in nowadays heavily controlled China? Under Xi Jinping, criticism that was allowed and even encouraged previously is now seen as dissidence. You know, so the line of what is what is palatable to the party as as change, which is in somehow very dangerous for the party, which is need still need like some input from society. Sure, if you suppress everything and you don't know what's going on, then you can exactly leave the pressure out of the cooking and pot, so to say. Exactly, and it's also very dangerous uh, for Xi Jinping, who is concentrating most of the power in his hands, because he's much more vulnerable in this way. So what is interesting to notice is that the Communist Party has tried to compartmentalize civil society. Um, labor issues are definitely sensitive because the body is meant from its origin to represent workers mm -hmm. and trade unions are like a pillar of the regime since Mao time. So this is very, very sensitive. But for example, um, in the environmental field, the party and the state really realized this past few years that they couldn't solve the pollution problem, for example, without the help of the public. And so in uh, in the environmental field, actually, you have much more space for NGOs to act. That's very funny how the party is trying to compartmentalize the civil society. It's just, uh, just as if the, 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 the different fields were isolated, was completely immune from each other's and this is a big challenge to try to do that but yeah let's see 
let's see what comes out of it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I have a feeling we could go on forever here. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I think we've reached the end of our podcast. Thank you, Chloe Froissart, for being with me today here and sharing your valuable insights. Thank I you. I wish you all the best for your further research and hope to read a lot about further field trips to China. Let's see. You are listening to Merrick's Experts, dear listeners out there, the podcast on current events in China, and hope you will listen in next time again. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.